Hey everyone, welcome to the very first episode of the Off-Ramp podcast. Our goal in this podcast is to keep you informed about the ongoings in immigration, migration, and general global affairs. Everything we do, what we purchase, the way that we interact with others who may or may not look like us, the food that we buy, everything we do impacts everything else. We have far more power both good and bad, than we give ourselves credit for. And part of the off-ramps mission is to inform and educate so that we can all make better, smarter, kinder choices for people and the planet. Today, I want to introduce to you two of my very favorite people, my mom and business partner, Nell, and my dear, dear friend and refugee relief professional, Sophie. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you for having me. Hey, it's a joy to be here. So actually, Mom, let's go ahead and start with you. Um, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Yeah, so my name is Nell Green. I am a minister by profession, um, and I have um, worked with refugees and forcibly displaced people from around the world for over 30 years. I think one of the reasons I do what I do is because when I first went overseas, I experienced all sorts of barriers to becoming a part of the culture and the society where I found myself. And I realized all of those barriers for me, I had many ways to overcome them and to, uh, to succeed. And I began to realize that forcibly displaced people not only have all the same barriers, many times those barriers are much greater than what I experienced. And it comes with the trauma of leaving places and homes and communities that they did not want to leave. After we came to the United States about um, 11 or 12 years ago and began working with refugees here, it occurred to me that the opportunities for a refugee to thrive um, in our very abundant society, um, the opportunities were immense. And having a basic understanding of some of what they've gone through, I wanted to be a part of helping them not only just become a part of the fabric of the society where they are, but helping them become the best that they can be. Hmm. Sophie, why don't you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do and why you do it. Absolutely. Hey, Nell and Kristen. I'm Sophie. I'm Sophie Albert, and I'm the Director of Refugee Programs at the Alliance in Houston. And the Alliance is a local nonprofit that works to create opportunities for refugee immigrants, but also under underserved, other underserved residents. And um, our refugee programs, like historically, it was founded as a refugee resettlement agency by Cambodian and Ethiopian Laotian refugees in the 80s and since then has developed to a much more complex agency and now doing also adult education. Still, obviously, we are having like a vast like, number of refugee programs, but also workforce education, financial opportunity center, tribals education, youth empowerment programs. That's a little bit of background on my agency and my work right now. And my background personally, I'm from Germany, and maybe that also plays into why do I do the work I do. I've grown up 
being very interested in history. And as you all know, German history mm. has been terrifying at points. And especially looking at the Holocaust, World War II, the many, many people who had to flee Germany at that time. And I was always horrified by that history and always wanted to work in a field where I could help people displaced. And then while I was studying, I studied in Syria. It was like one of my most memorable times. It was my first time far away from home by myself. And I've lived with a lovely family. And then just a couple of years after that, um, all of my friends from Syria were displaced because of the Syrian war. So I think that reinforced my, my will to work with displaced populations, to make home for people away from home, and just to maybe make it a little bit easier for some people. Sure. Well, at the off-ramp, we try to create opportunities for refugees and other forcibly displaced people to not just survive, but thrive. And when I have these conversations with people about what, what it is that we do, the very initial obstacle is confusion over all of the names that we use, the words that we use when we talk about migration issues. Refugee, asylee, asylum seeker, immigrant. Could both of you talk a little bit about what differentiates all of these different um, legal terms and what they mean? Well, Sophie, I'll, I'll let you jump in first. Um, but let me just begin the conversation by saying definitions are important, not just because it helps us understand a situation, but it helps us better understand how we can address the needs of that particular person. Mm. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I think the first thing to distinguish is between like refugees and internally displaced people. Because many, many people in the world don't know how high the number of internally displaced actually is. Yeah. So a refugee is somebody who fled their country due to the fear of persecution on account of race, nationality, religion, political opinion, or social group. That's the strict definition, okay? I mean, and that's obviously there's so many different definitions within that. Mm -hmm. But the main part of it is, is refugees have left their country and with that crossed the border while an internally displaced person has not crossed the border. They're internally displaced within their home country. And they still have been forced to leave their homes. And because of armed conflicts, disasters, situations of violence, anything like that. But actually, that number of internally displaced people is much higher than of refugees. So I think that's always an important point to mention. Absolutely. Mom, did you have something else you wanted to add? Here in the United States, attached with the word refugee, when we say refugee, we are talking about somebody who has been vetted by the UNHCR, um, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, and have come with, uh, with work permits, social security number, etc. They are legal citizens and have... Um, the, 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 the rights and privileges to, to work and to establishing a life here. Exactly. Yeah. I think there's the, like, you have to distinguish between refugee and asylee in that point. And I think that's what confuses people over here. So the main difference between refugee and asylee status is where a person applies for admission into a country. Okay. Like an asylee in the U S or an asylum seeker would enter the U S 
and then file for an application while refugee in the United States has applied for that status outside of the US. And then as Nell just mentioned, they have gone through that intense vetting process of UNHCR, but also like detailed security checkings of the US government. And it's like a long, long process that can take many, many years. So that's quite important, especially in the current environment to make clear how detailed that vetting process is. Yeah. Well, one of our goals on this podcast is to avoid talking politics. It's easy to get in the politics of all of this. It's much more difficult, but also much more important to discuss the impacts of policies. And there's been a lot of changes in the policies regarding the number of refugees that are allowed into the US. So my basic understanding, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, is that the governors in the United States were given the opportunity by President Trump to basically tell him whether or not they they were willing for their state to resettle refugees. And they were given a date toward the end of January. Is that correct? So he ordered, like, there was an executive order that requires states and local officials to consent to refugee resettlement. However, it's currently challenged in the courts, and I think that is very important because three of the national resettlement agencies filed a lawsuit because they say it's unlawful <laughs> and violates federal law because federal law says the refugee resettlement program um, is built in a way that federal agencies decide about placement and that there's no justification for that need of consent. So okay. we'll know how that plays out in the next couple of weeks and then we'll know if this executive order actually is lawful. And yes, you were right, by the end of January, by January 21st, states and localities have to give consent. And I will add that it is the executive administration of the United States that decides the number of refugees that can actually enter. So exactly. each, each administration sets a number, a, a cap, if you will. You can take less than that, but you can take no more. Exactly. And this administration has significantly <clears throat> the number of refugees that they're allowing within the U.S., correct? Correct, yeah. It's an average yes. of 80,000 since the start of the program. And in 2016, it was 95. That was a pretty high number. And then since that, it has like slowly decreased. Last year was 30,000, and this year the determination's at 18,000, just to give some numbers. So, Mom, what are the consequences of this initial sort of executive level policy of just resettling fewer refugees within the United States? I think it's a couple of things. Um, and, and, you know, Sophie, this is where your experience with a refugee agency um, you would be able to speak to this better, but I, I see two issues. One, many times because of the number of refugees we've been receiving, we're in crisis mode. Um, get them settled, find them apartment, get them jobs, get the kids settled, um, get the initial, uh, you know, medical workups and dental workups, etc. And so you're very, very engaged in that. And sometimes that means that after a refugee has been here, a year, two years, maybe uh, we have not had as much opportunity as we would have liked um, to help them thrive, find them careers, not just jobs, help them develop skills, work perhaps on some accreditations, maybe schooling, etc. Things that, you know, we would really like to do, but you're just receiving refugees. And, and so the current situation, I think, um, does permit us to say, okay, we still have refugees. 
It's not like we don't have refugees. We still have refugees. So now what can we do to help the refugees that are here? The other point I would make is just because the state of Texas might not be willing to receive refugees doesn't mean a refugee can't arrive here in Texas. That refugee can go to a state that does accept refugees. And then the very next day, if they so choose, they can move to Texas. But our agencies might not have the funding available to them to help that refugee. So I think that this is going to greatly increase um, the, the need for uh, NGOs, faith-based groups, churches, and individuals to come alongside our agencies. So that's the two big things I see that perhaps is going to change um, as a result of some of these decisions. Yeah, I absolutely agree, especially with the second part. It's kind of dismantling a settlement program that has been established over the decades. And so many like agencies had to close, but that also means that for the people here, right, obviously we can now focus to help those more like Nell said, I think that's a very valid point. It also means that if those agencies close their doors, there is like a loss of resources and knowledge and support systems for some areas for immigrants and refugees that have been here for years and maybe even US citizens by now. And then I also want to like focus a little bit on the personal level. Like what does that mean? The cut of numbers. There's so many people who went through the overseas processing and that are now in a limbo and waiting. Like for years they can't travel. They're just waiting. They have been rejected after they actually were ready to travel, which kind yeah. of and Sophie, limbo, let, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me jump in here. When yeah. Sophie talks about waiting, we're not talking six months. Exactly. We're talking... People have languished in refugee camps for 20 and 25 years. There are exactly. people who have arrived here to the United States that were born and raised in a refugee camp and have known nothing else except this, this type of um, limbo, as she described it. So we're not just talking about, I'm waiting for a visa. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for some paperwork. We are talking about years and sometimes decades. So it's like a life between lives, which I think is always the hard part. You're not waiting for a certain time and somebody told you, you will wait for 20 years or for five years. You always think maybe tomorrow something will happen. So you don't really have the opportunity to establish a life where you are because you never know when you move to the next place, right. which I think and, is the hardest part. Yeah. yeah. And let's bring up the point that a refugee does not get a choice about where they go. If they yeah. come through the UNHCR, they go where the UNHCR tells them. So maybe you've got relatives in Canada, but you arrive in Belgium. Maybe you've got relatives in Texas, but you end up in Minnesota. I mean, it, it, you have no choice. So really for a lifetime, it, at least for months, years, and like I said, sometimes decades, all of your life choices rest in the hands of other people. Yeah. So absolutely. <laughs> a refugee finally arrives. They're here or they've been here for a little while. Sophie, what can an agency like yours do for them? And mom, what can a person who has zero experience with interacting with refugees do. Sophie, I'll let you take it first. What, how does your agency support refugees once they're here in a really practical human way? Okay, so initially we do the initial resettlement 
which is the first three months. So it's the very initial support when you move to a new place, basically. So we pick you up at the airport, we set up an apartment, we help with social security, medical insurance, things like that. And then it goes over to finding people a job through employment programs, setting them up for education. Obviously, English language is very important, but then also social services for people that may need a little bit more help, connecting them to intensive case management programs, medical help, mental health help. So all of those things are vital. And that all takes place in the first three months to a year. And then we have longer term programs that are more like social adjustment. And we also work with um, survivors of domestic violence. So those are more long term situations that we help people with. But it's really like individualized case management. So it's while the initial resettlement is very much like ticking off boxes, anything that comes afterwards is very individualized to the needs of an individual and on the way on their, to their self-sufficiency pretty much. So, mom, as a listener uh, that's hearing this podcast and, you know, wants to help but doesn't know how, beyond just going to our website, of course, and uh, picking a project or donating to what we're doing at the off-ramp or looking into Sophie's agency and um, the Alliance in Texas and investing with them, what practical, easy things can they do where they are to help a refugee <laughs> So for people that are not connected to the refugee community um, like we are and have been for some time, for us, the very best first step is to connect to a refugee agency. Most refugee agencies are looking for people who will come alongside them and who will befriend and come alongside refugees. What might that look like? Maybe you'll be one of the people at the airport welcoming them. Um, one, one of the best stories I have heard um, is a woman was in a grocery store in Charlotte and um, Charlotte, North Carolina. And she was just looking around and came across this, this group of three or four boys who were obviously from another country and were struggling and come to find out they were from Sudan had been in a refugee camp, had arrived to Charlotte, North Carolina, and this was one of their early trips to the grocery store. And they were just trying to figure out what things were and how could they buy stuff that they could go home and then know how to cook. And so she spent the next hour or so just helping these boys shop and, and then very generously gave them her number and said, you know, okay, listen, if you need more help, give me a call. She gets back home and within an hour, she gets a phone call and they're like, thank you for helping us, you know, pick our food, etc." But Hey, can you come help us learn how to turn the oven on? <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And what, what developed was a beautiful relationship between first of all, this woman and this group of boys, but then this woman went back to her faith community and said, Hey, look at what I've discovered. And that faith community built a wonderful relationship with the Sudanese boys that had been relocated to Charlotte. It's not rocket science. If you just connect to a refugee agency so that you can figure out where the refugees are and who needs help, they will connect you. And then it's just do life with them. 
help the, it is so hard for a refugee family to receive all of the paperwork as a child enters school. They have no idea how to work through it, what it means, what's necessary. Go with them to help them figure out how to purchase school supplies. <clears throat> Kristen, I don't know if you remember this, but when we first moved to Belgium and we had to go buy school supplies, I already spoke basic French. And yet, buying those school supplies was one of the most horrifying experiences of trying to get my children into school. Just I go with them. That. I remember that very well. It was traumatic for me as well. <laughs> it, it was so hard. So you know what? Just read the papers with them. Help them know what it is. Help them do some grocery shopping. Refugee women, many of them because of their background, can be isolated. Um, husbands must find jobs as quickly as possible. That's another thing people can do. Just help them fill out job applications. Our agencies are inundated um, with all of these sorts of tasks that truthfully, if we as individuals would just come alongside a family for six months to a year, maybe longer, and just help them navigate these very ordinary day-by-day -day things that for us is just habit, we can change the trajectory of the lives of a refugee family here in the United States. Sophie, how do you think, as opposed to individuals, how do you think businesses and organizations can make a difference for a refugee or support an agency like yours? I think providing fair opportunities without like, maybe like expecting this like continuous gratitude, which I, which I have seen a lot and changing the narrative surrounding refugees a little bit through that education, fair wages, fair chances for career enhancement, and maybe also acknowledging doing things a little bit different. Like obviously in the beginning, you may have to be a little bit more patient, supporting English classes, supporting more like mentoring in a way of like mentoring. Mm -hmm. But then also I think long-term giving agency to people, and in the whole term, I think understanding the importance of dignity is one of the most vital things as a business organization and whenever you work with refugees or really any you. So I think I, those I think, are the most important Yeah, ones. and I yeah. think Sophie, I think Sophie brought up something that is really important. And of, of course, Kristen is why you and I are doing what we're doing. There is dignity when you have gainful, meaningful, employment that you then can contribute to your family and take care of them in such a way um, that they are able to thrive and become the best people that they can be. Yet, when a refugee arrives, very often their credentials are not acceptable here. The training that they've had is not something that's recognized. Maybe they've got a language barrier. Um, they need to get a job as quickly as possible. Often that means a minimum wage job at, you know, a fast food restaurant or, you know, a discount store or something like that. And it makes it very difficult for them to achieve these milestones. And so when a, when a refugee agency has done the initial work 
and and Sophie, you can speak to this. The initial work for most agencies is is three to six months, but but what a refugee family needs goes beyond that, and that's where we can say, hey, what can we do to help you be the best that you can be and thrive? And that might mean um, helping in some of these um, higher levels, if you will. Sophie, I, I want to get back to something that you said, because it, it's something that I've actually thought a lot about recently. This narrative that refugees who are here should just be grateful that is actually really harmful for them, for us, and that it's something we need to change. Can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what is a good example, even in the pro-refugee community, one argument is always how refugees contribute to the economy, which is true, but it's also kind of putting expectations on people who are new to the country. It's glorifying the refugee experience. And I don't think we should even go that far. I believe it's like part of our obligation to provide protection really to anybody who's in danger or to welcome strangers to our country. So I think we should more listen to the stories of immigrants, refugees, and we have to understand that they don't have to continuously justify their flight, which, which I see a lot. Like everybody wants to know, oh, what's your story? But they really only mean, what's your story of flight? Or oh, you, you must be grateful that you're here, which no, it should be we should just help people because they are in danger. You know what I mean? There's no unworthy or worthy person. Like it's always worth it to save a life. And a person at all has also has the right to just be simple, normal, lead a normal, imperfect life. Not everybody has to be a success story. I think that's something and, that I think is really important. And yet on the other end, most refugees are truly grateful. Exactly. We somehow yes. <laughs> we somehow have this very negative image that refugees are disgruntled and unhappy and 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 they're not. They're they are so grateful for freedom, for safety, for security, for education, for opportunity. They they would not have left their home in their country except they felt they had to something was forcing them and so when they come here to a place where agencies help them and people come alongside them and they're able to um to gain a life for themselves and their children they are grateful Yes, absolutely. I think that's true. I think it's just hard if you have to continuously prove that, especially in the beginning, because many people come from really good lives. They have been doctors or engineers in their country. They live beautiful lives. All of a sudden, something changed, and within a minute, they were a refugee in this place. And then they had to start completely new, or living in a small apartment, or uh, working uh, a minimum wage job in the beginning. I think that can be really tough sometimes. I, I but, absolutely agree. Yeah, I tell you, yeah. I tell you an instance that put this into perspective for me. Uh, we we were living in Brussels, working among refugees in Brussels, and I was out um, walking with a friend of mine, and um, she had been very, very, very affluent in her home country. And yeah. they were barely making it. But she was my friend, right? And yeah. I'm talking about my problems. And my problems at that point was raising two teenage children, <laughs> trying, trying to figure out the crises that families go through as, you know, they try to do that. And, 
And I, I looked at her and I said, so, so, you know, did you have these kind of issues um, when you were growing up? And she looked at me and she said, Nell, when I was growing up, I listened to the bombs fall and yeah. worried every day that my siblings would come home. No, I didn't deal with these issues. It just puts it in perspective. Absolutely. And what, what we can then offer them is to say, we are so sorry. We wouldn't wish that for anybody, but we are glad to offer you a place of safety and security. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then basically connect over that shared humanity, uh, connect over similarities. Even then, I think it's really important and just see the human behind everybody and not always see this like refugee story as like something lingering over them. I think that's really important. And as, as you said now, she was one of your friends. So you connected on many, many different levels, which I think is great. And I, I think you brought up a, the nuance of, a, of something that bothers me, um, Sophie, even... I mean, I'm, part of my job is to, is to tell the refugee story, right? Which, yeah. means, which means, you know, I need to, I need to help uh, my constituents understand who the refugees are and what they do. And yet, I completely dislike continuing to identify um, these people that I admire, respect, and love as refugees. Because it's a label, right? It's a label exactly. that they then carry with them forever. And while you don't want that, I'm not sure how we overcome that label as we try to tell their stories and try to bring uh, the resources to them that we want to bring to them. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. Sophie, if I could say, Mom, I, I didn't realize that that was something you were struggling with as well. I'll be honest, as I market threads by Nomad in the off-ramp and refer to these people that I know and love, like Hyder, who is our friend and also our head tailor, if, as I refer to him as a refugee or the refugees on our team, it, it feels like I'm, like you said, Sophie, taking their humanity away from them. And, you mm -hmm. know, I still have to market. I still have, like you said, mom, I still have to tell their story because ultimately I want, I want us to be able to help them to the best of our ability. And so I, I also struggle with that. I'm, I'm not sure that there is a cut and dry solution, except that we recognize that this is something we're struggling with. Um, so, absolutely. you know, it's yeah. so, so to give I, I, me too. I absolutely, I, I don't think of Hyder as a refugee. I don't think of Atia as a refugee. I don't, I don't think of Munir. I, I, I just, you know, I think of them as our team members, others who have worked for us. The, the story I just told of the young woman um, uh, who kind of, you know, put things into perspective for me, she worked, worked like you would not believe until her younger sister was well-established in Belgium, had, um, had a family, um, was married, was, was, was really living a thriving life. Then she looked to herself she did eventually um, go and um, she found somebody that has been wonderful. They married. She's got children. She has a very affluent life now. I don't think of her as a refugee. I don't think of her as a refugee. Yet, if I want people to understand the possibility 
that's out there for the people who are coming to us. That's the terminology I have to use. We have about 10 more minutes before I want to wrap this up, but Sophia, I want to talk to you about the very specific effects that the new policies regarding the governor's decisions have had on your agency in the state of Texas. So recently we're in, we learned that Governor Abbott is not going to accept refugee resettlement in the state of Texas this coming year. And like you said, it's still being debated in the courts and that could change. But I, I'm curious, what does that mean for an agency like yours? And what does that mean for refugees um, on the ground? Does that, does fund, is funding impacted? I just, I want to make sure that people understand that the policies that our administrations put out have real impacts on the lives of people who, who you know, Americans who work for agencies like yours and the refugees that they serve. Yeah, I mean, it impacts the whole system, really. Texas, historically, has resettled 10% of the annual arrivals. So it's like the biggest state for refugee resettlement. So obviously, it will have an impact. But as Nell mentioned earlier, people who want to come to Texas because they have family here, they will still come, right? I mean, they'll just be resettled in another state initially and then drive their way down to Texas. So it's really it cuts funding from agencies, obviously. But um, it's also dismantling the whole system a little bit because if national agencies can't send their people to Texas anymore, but they kind of already have to prepare for them out migrating later, the whole system is kind of shaken up. So we don't know yet, I think, how we're going to deal with that. However, I think as a network of local agencies and the support, I also have to say we have a strong local support. Like the Houston community is very welcome. Many like communities within Texas are very welcome. So we have gotten a lot of support over the last years. We had to work with diversifying funding, as Nell said, work more with like the people who are already here. And, but more on a personal level, I think what is important, obviously like many agencies had to close their doors, people use, lose their resources, but also people that were in the pipeline. For, I have family members who traveled and they thought their spouses would arrive the next week. And then in 2017, the Muslim ban happened. Or now the, the cut of numbers, same thing again, like 40,000 people were in the pipeline already. They went through their security, everything. Now they can't travel. And that means on a very personal level that you have mothers who haven't seen their children in forever, who thought they would travel right afterwards, who most probably wouldn't even have left without it. I have people in my office every week who tell me these stories. It's like spouses who haven't seen... Like there's fathers who haven't seen their children because they were born here because their wife traveled before. So I think that's the most important impact it has, really the separation of families. Hmm. Well, where, where is the hope in all of this? Um, Mom, first you, and then Sophie, you. I have always advocated that the faith-based community must understand the benefits and advantages uh, that our government entities offer um, to our refugee community and therefore be willing to undergird that. For me, the hope is that they will realize, wait a minute, if all of this really comes down this way, then we're going to be needed more than ever. Individuals, NGOs, 
churches. This is beautiful. There has been such a separation between refugees and our communities. They are the other. They are the marginalized. They are the ones um, who are not quite accepted. This offers us an amazing opportunity to say, okay, well, wait a minute. We are going to come alongside these families and we are going to build community. Uh, you know, one of the things that I bring up about refugees is I don't believe that they should integrate or assimilate. I believe they should acclimate. They should become comfortable here. They don't need to become like us. We don't need to become like them. Our cultures, our backgrounds, our traditions are different. But let's build community together. I think we are in a situation right now that we are being offered an opportunity to build community in ways we have not done it before. And frankly, I welcome it. Um, although I do want to see our refugee agencies continue and I want to see them continue to receive their funding. Nevertheless, we have a great opportunity here. Sophie, where do you find the hope in all of this? I think I agree with Nell. I think the amount of compassion, the amount of welcome I have seen from people, from former refugees, immigrants, but also any community member really in the Houston area, but also in other communities. When I previously worked and more on a more like national level, the many, many communities throughout the whole country who are welcoming, who are standing side and side to like share dinners every day and really take people in is, is beautiful to me. And I think that is really our hope to restore our compassion, ensure we are not doing the mistakes of the past again, as you know, that's where I'm coming from with this whole work and to just connect over that and yeah, help each other. Yeah. So I'll just give a, a plug here. If, if anybody listening to this podcast wonders, Hey, what, what can I do? Um, if you'll go to our website, the offramp.org, um, we will be giving away a PDF here in the, the next, um, I'm, I'm not sure sis, but the next few days, um, about very specific ways, very specific ways that you can begin um, engaging with refugees. And I think important is also how you can engage, but also help. I think on a worldwide <laughs> level, but also on a local level, like I think mm -hmm. unrestricted donations is something people don't always understand how oh, important it is, but it's very it's good most, point. Most it important is very things, yes. important. <laughs> yes. Very important. Yeah. So Sophie, can, can people donate to the Alliance where they can, where can they find you and how can they help your agency? So they can donate on our homepage and they can also find us through the homepage, call our number and can be directed to me or really to anybody else within the agency through that. So what, that is, what is that website? So the full name of the agency is the Alliance for Multicultural Community Services. So if you type that in in Google, you'll find it. And the homepage is thealliancetx.org. So thealliancetx.org, like TX for Texas, right? Exactly, correct. Okay, and they can donate. Um, you're, you are in need, as the off-ramp is, um, and most nonprofit organizations are in need of unrestricted funds so that they can be applied where the agency needs it most, needs them most. 
And, Correct. Um, and we'll be reaching out in the next few weeks with, like mom said, a document of 10 really easy, simple ways to plug into refugee relief and um, help our refugee friends. We'll do another podcast on that when it comes out. Sophie, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about or you wanted us to let people know before we sign off? I think just as Nell said, be compassionate, help each other, but also advocate in the current environment. Like make clear your welcoming community and sure to share that with your constituents, with your governors, local entities. I think that is really, really important right now to show your welcome to the community. Mm -hmm. Well, we're so grateful for the work that you do. Uh, Mom, thanks for participating in this conversation um, as well. And I, um, I'm just glad, Sophie, I, I haven't seen you in a few months. And I'm just glad to hear your voice for an extended period of time. I <laughs> You know, um, for those who don't know, Sophie was a friend of mine from the D.C. area and then happened to move to Houston where mom is. So we um, we've stayed in touch and seen each other since then, but not in a while. So hopefully we can all get together soon. And thank you both for being here. That sounds lovely. Thank you so much, both of you. Bye. Our joy. Thanks, Sophie. Thank you, Kristen. Bye. <laughs> Bye.